You're listening to the Toolstation Western League podcast with Ian Knockholds and Tom Hiscott. Welcome listeners to episode 29 of the Toolstation Western League podcast with me, Ian Knockholds, and I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Mr. James Healy. Hello, James. How are you? Very well, Ian. Just sat watching a bit of the cricket. England is going along quite nicely at the moment, so um, fingers oh, crossed speak, for another win. Don't don't speak too soon, though, will you, eh? No, that's anyway. true. No, we'll <laughs> probably lose a couple of wickets by the time we uh, fi- finish the podcast. Let's let's hope not. Um, I mean, how uh, how have you been? How's your how's your week been? Are you uh, are you still are you, are you still being put through your paces by the personal trainer? Yeah, I went down last last Thursday. So it's every Thursday, but. Thankfully, you can do group sessions soon when uh, the restrictions are lifted, uh, so we can have, do more uh, more group stuff. So I got a bit of a bad shoulder though from shoveling all my horse manure at my allotment the other week. Uh, so my shoulders are my shoulders killing me at the moment. So taking painkillers before I go down and see him before he makes me lift all these weights. Well, talking of shoveling horse manure, let's get on with let's get on with this week's podcast. <laughs> Actually, that's not the that's not the analogy um, I, I should really be using because I think we've got an absolutely fantastic podcast um, for you listeners um, this week. We're going to be speaking to the grassroots official of the year, uh, and uh, that is uh, a young woman called Ella Broad, and she runs the line at our Western League matches. Um, so, um, so that's going to be a, a really interesting. Um, interview with a, with a match official who I think is going to be rising through the ranks. We've obviously got James's week on Twitter. And in the second half of the podcast, I bring you an interview that I did last week with Ollie Bayliss, of course, the BBC journalist, presenter of the non-league um, football show, and um, somebody that during the pandemic has really been one of the go-to individuals for information on on what's going on uh, at the FA and and uh, you know and, and in football in general, particularly at our level. So um, I was really delighted that Ollie made the time um, to speak to me. I'm sure many of you will be familiar with him um, from his uh, work on the BBC, and uh, you know it's it's a, it was a delight um, to to get him onto the Toolstation Westernly podcast. Now, one piece of housekeeping just before we get into this uh, this week's episode of the podcast is uh, an announcement about the FA Club programme. Now, the Western League has sent this out to all club secretaries, um, but I thought it was worth raising on the podcast because it does um, present a very interesting opportunity for all of our clubs. The FA Club programme is funded and delivered by the FA, and the aim is to help develop healthy, sustainable, community-focused clubs um, for the future with the ambition to help your club be the best version of itself. Uh, it is a limited yet free resource offering specialist advice to help steer you through these turbulent times. Identify challenges and needs and to plan for future development at your football club. The, so the programme offers a range of support, um, both from the FA and from other professional service providers uh, and dedicated consultants um, who have either pro- the professional qualifications and experience um, of running non-league football um, to help um, our member clubs. Um, the email that's been sent out um, uh, needs to be actioned by Tuesday, the 30th of March. So I thought that's why it would be a good idea to mention it now on the podcast. And um, the, the Western League really hope that as many of our clubs uh, are able to benefit from this programme as possible. Um, you know, we've spoken to many people during the lockdown who've worked tirelessly at their clubs to improve the facilities, you know, even if it's a lick of paint or perhaps replacing equipment. So if there's anything that um, your club's if there are any objectives that clubs have uh, about things that they would like to put in place or um, better develop, then now is the time to try and get some advice. I, I can't guarantee that everything that you want can be delivered, but at least this is an opportunity to make the most of the of the hiatus that we have so that when we start again um, next season, we can all hit the ground running. Um, but we will kick off with the interview that I did with Ella Broad. Ella has uh, recently been announced in the press as the grassroots official of the year. Um, so I started my conversation with her by congratulating her on being given the award. And I started asking, when did she hear the news? Yeah, so thank you for having me on this afternoon. Um, it was this time last year. So around August time, um, I got presented with my award. So very, very pleased to receive the award and I'm very grateful for it. Now, I mean, it's grassroots official of the year. So does that cover, is that, an, are there age groups in that or are you the sort of the, the official of the year for the whole country? Yeah, I think my understanding is that it's sort of the national award um, overall for grassroots football. 
so covering all age groups across um, the grassroots football level in England. And, and, and genders, I take it. You're not just the female match official of the year, you are the match official of the year. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's great, isn't it? And, and that's, that's, that's wonderful for sort of equality. And it would be interesting to hear about your, your experiences, um, obviously, of, of officiating at the men's and the women's game. Um, but, um, I mean, let's go back to the very beginning. What got you into being a match official in the first place? Yeah, so um, I used to play football. Um, so I've always played football from a young age. Um, fancy something different, fancy to change, thought I'd give refereeing a go. Alongside studying, it was sort of what I could call a job at the time. So started at thinking £15 on a Saturday morning. Brilliant <laughs> to have that in my back pocket. So from there, um, started to progress, meet new people and decided to go for promotion and sort of progress through the ladder sort of thing. And how old were you when you started? Um, I was 14 when I took my course, so I just turned 14. So yeah, started started at the youngest age I could have. So what's your journey been like um, since then? Because I mean, you're, you're, I'm right in thinking you're 18 now. So over the last four years, how have, uh, how have you uh, pro sort of progressed up the ladder? Obviously I was 14 in September. So uh, my birthday's in August, took the test in September. Um, did two years at grassroots level. Um, when I was 16, I got into adults football straight away. Um, wanted to go for promotion, but wasn't quite in that age bracket. So waited a season, still doing adults football to get the experience and stuff. And then must have been around March time, um, I applied for a promotion. I went seven to five. So I sort of did that double jump, um, sort of make up for the year that I thought I'd lost uh, due to my age. So I sort of did seven to five alongside the women's promotion as well. So I sort of did three promotions in one season last season. Um, was lucky enough to achieve them all and then this season I'm going for my level four and level two in the women's game. Am I right in thinking then that, that you've actually you have officiated or you've run the line at, a, at Western League level games? Yeah that's right so um, must have been season before last I started running the line at Western League um, and next season if I'm lucky enough to get my level four I'll be officiating in the middle at Western League so. Right think... well, I, have to, I have to be on my best behaviour then. Um, I mean, what other levels of the uh, of the game um, have you have you um, officiated at? Because obviously you're not. I mean, you mentioned there yourself. You're doing the women's game, but you're also doing the men's game. You're not. You know, you're you are. You know, you're not just um, officiating people of your own age group. You're, you're you know, you are you are um, you're officiating adults, aren't you? Yeah. So in the men's game at the minute, I'm doing the Wiltshire Senior League. So that's the main league I prioritise myself. Um, then in the women's game, it's the National League. So that covers all areas from around here so the south division um split into two north and south so covering across the south of the country um and then i run the line on the women's championship so i've had a couple of games for that that's been really good really good experience as well excellent i mean what are your ambitions then how far do you want to take this interest in match officiating yeah i want to go as far as i can really um when i first started i didn't think of it as a career as such i just did it for something fun to do but um as I've gone for promotion, I've seen more like opportunities open and I just want to take it as far as I can, really. So that could take it, take you all the way to sort of the international game, perhaps? Yeah, I think definitely in the women's side of the game, um, I want to keep pushing more for the women's game because there's more opportunities that have opened. Um, I've I got the opportunity to referee England under 17 uh, girls a couple of months ago, which was a really good experience. So sort of opening opportunities already, um, getting into the international fixtures and stuff. So it's really good. That's brilliant. I mean, one of the things we've focused on the Western League podcast, um, you know, over the last couple of years, really, is we, you know, we, we've done um, uh, interviews with ref support. You know, we've, we've looked at campaigns like, you know, Love the Whistle. And, you know, we know that it's not always a bed of roses. I mean, you've had a, a fascinating rise through the ranks, but I imagine that, you um, the, the sort of abuse that um, we talked to people like Martin Cassidy about in the past. I mean, have, have you had your own experiences of, of, of that? I'd say I've been quite lucky, to be honest. Um, I've had the odd incidents, but nothing that's ever given me a big setback or anything. Um, but some of the stories you hear, obviously working at the county, quite a lot of stories that come in about abuse, especially to young officials. It's just, I don't know, it's shocking to see really, but I haven't experienced it firsthand, so I don't have a first-hand experience of such abuse 
I mean, is that um, largely because, the, I mean, I suppose in the last couple of years, there probably hasn't been that many fans in the um, in the grounds. I mean, and, we, and I think we're very focused on the amount of abuse and on the line abuse that officials, you know, get on, on social media. But um, I suppose your experiences would be more to do with the players, would they, would they and the coaches, you know, those relationships really, that, 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 those are the relationships that you have when you're, you know, in, when you're managing a game. Yeah, definitely. I think when I was younger, it was more daunting from the parent spectator sort of view. Um, you're 14 years old, you turn up to referee a game of football, not expecting all this sort of stuff shouting from parents. Um, they also get far too involved, get far too excited. But my dad was one of those parents when I was playing. So it was sort of recognising it's all out of passion for the game. Um, I think with men's football, it's more the players direct it at you, but they do it as well for the le their love of the game. It's never sort of directly aimed at me for being a female etc or whatever I've never received anything that I found abusive like abusive or insulting um I think as well being young myself I sort of understand I can tolerate it like language and stuff it's never offended me never really taken offense to it because I'm in that bracket of people that do it all the time and think it's normal in conversation so <laughs> I just sort of accept it yeah it's part of the game really it's, it makes the game interesting that's for sure <laughs> I mean, I'm really pleased to hear this, Ella, because I think perhaps, you know, to, sometimes we can be guilty of, um, of demonising um, elements of our game. And um, as much as, you know, I think any abuse of, of, of match officials or indeed anybody on the field of play is something that I don't feel very comfortable about. I think we have to be adult about the realities of the world that we live in. So I'm, I'm one, I'm, I think you're absolutely right in what you're saying, too. I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that actually, you know, you haven't. Um, been subjected to that and I, you know and I hope that that continues to be the case because I think the great fear of the abuse that match officials get ultimately that will lead people to leave the game they'll lose their love of the game and um, and I think it's really important that we um, you know that we we, we we encourage as many people to get involved because you you know you have a very positive message you've had a really positive experience and your you know the achievements that you've made let alone the award but officiating at international level I mean that's that's a wonderful story to tell people who are interested in getting involved isn't it yeah definitely I want to sort of use my ex positive experiences of the game to sort of inspire more people to get involved and even if they do feel like they're having a bad game or they've got experience had a bad experience it just sort of gives them the courage to carry on because there is wards out of it and there is stuff that you can aim for so yeah uh, now you mentioned earlier your role at the Wiltshire FA um, can you tell us a bit about that yeah so I started working for Wilts in September time sort of got the role of football assistant it's quite broad um, with what I do I've cut I cover quite a lot of the refereeing um, aspects so helping young referees and stuff um, I've also taken on like the role of the youth council, so I'm sort of chair of the youth council, sort of overlooking all the events that we do through the youth council. Um, I used to be a member of it, so it's quite good to sort of give back as a work aspect, taking that on. Um, I'm also getting involved with sort of coach education, so sort of pushing out those messages to coaches. So yeah, sort of every aspect of football um, I'm involved in. And we are hurtling towards uh, March the 29th and the return of, of grassroots football. Um, I mean, I take it that's something that you're going to be involved with, both, you know, hopefully on the pitch and also from your from the county perspective. Yeah, so we're sort of still awaiting further updates from the FA coming out um, in terms of how it's all going to work. But getting lots of questions already for emails, people are really excited to get going. Um, I haven't got any games yet, but sort of submitting availability, waiting for these games to come through. Um, I think this lockdown has just been a case of trying to keep as fit as possible. It'll be quite interesting to see what the players have been doing over lockdown as well. So <laughs> it'll be quite interesting when we get back to see sort of how the game's changed or if people are really excited to get back or whether they're just sort of ticking over until the end of the season. So, yeah, it'll be really good to get going again. And, um, I mean, if we, if we think about... Um... Uh, you know, anybody listening to this interview who perhaps is interested in looking at becoming a match official, what would be your message to them? I'd say just sort of give it a go. When I first started, I didn't know what to expect. I'd obviously never, when I played football, I never looked at the referee, never like engaged with the referee, didn't really notice they were there. So I think it's a completely different area of football. And now when I'm watching football or I'm going to watch a match in person, you sort of you know the referees there you're looking at the referee when before you didn't even like take any notice of them 
So I think it's a really good area of football to get involved in. Um, for me, I definitely had more opportunities um, through refereeing than I would have got through playing. So it's just a different, it's like coaching. So if you feel like you want to be a coach, you don't find yourself enjoying football playing. It's just a different area to keep you engaged in the game. So I'd just say give it a go and see how you get on, really. Well, it may well be some time yet before we get a chance to see you in a in a in a western league fixture but um certainly if you'll get the chance to get out there i know that there's plenty of sort of under 18s competitions and other county competitions going on so hopefully um you know hopefully you'll get a chance to um to to, to blow the rust off that whistle and uh, and and get out before we start next season proper in september ella thank you very much indeed for taking the time to speak to us it's been great to have you all no problem thank you for having me and my thanks to Ella for her time. Now then, James, um, what's been going on in your week on Twitter? Mm, not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> from from a, a league and a club's point of view, it's been uh, it's been quite a quiet week actually. Um, normally, yourself, you send over some some links, but we just had the one from you this week, which I think is uh, a really good one actually. It's uh, Bridgewater Town's uh, Jamie Wilson, who's uh, over training with the uh, British Virgin Islands ahead of their World Cup qualifier games against uh, Guatemala and uh, St Vincent and the Grenadines. So uh, wishing him all, all the best when he's uh, hopefully features for them uh, playing international football. I'm not sure how many international footballers we have playing in the Tool Station Western League, but it's, uh, as you said, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a great story. That is, fingers crossed he, uh, he gets on and... Uh, gets a cap. I wonder if he does get a cap. It would be interesting to see what sort of cap he gets. We'll have to try and find that out, actually. Yeah, I mean, on the subject of international footballers in the Tool Station Western League, I'm an, I imagine that with April the 1st rapidly approaching, we'll probably have quite a few more. Um, but uh, no, that is a really interesting, um, um, you know, tweet. Uh, again, I mean, you know, Bridgewater, obviously, we covered re- really regularly in the, in, you know, in the lockdown. I mean, there's a lot going on at that, that football club. But, um, you know, it'd be great to hear of um, from other from other players um, uh, and from other clubs um, who you know who have perhaps got players who've who've uh, who've got an international cap. It's uh, it's quite a yeah, it's quite an interesting little story, and it'd be nice to perhaps perhaps we can have a chat with him on the podcast when he gets back. That would be I was good. Going to say that it would be good. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear some tales of his trip away with them. Uh, another one was uh, just an announcement, really. Plymouth Parkway for their. Um, Next round of the FA Vars, due to play at home, but due to maintenance happening at their home ground, they've uh, switched their venue. So it's now going to be played at the uh, Devon FA HQ at Coach Road in Newton Abbott. So if anyone was thinking of uh, going, not like you can. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, don't go. You were thinking of going. Please don't don't go. go. Yeah, Yeah, please don't go. Um, But yeah, they've they've switched their their home tie against Fairham Town to the Devon FAHQ, and pr- that's pretty much it. I mean, Exmouth again have been busy this week, yeah. documented what they're doing down there. Cribs are doing their uh, their usual on this day. Uh, someone did reply to them. I don't know if you've seen the, the old lady on BBC. <laughs> She's got another one. Um, so <laughs> they, tweeted, they tweeted it, and someone just replied, oh, no, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's about it, Ian. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite quiet on uh, on Twitter this week. Which tells us something, doesn't it, about the sort of the work of the social media managers across the Western League? Because, I mean, I know, you know, we've spoken about it before that during the close season, normal close season, it was hard enough for you, to, you know, when you're in the professional ranks to keep fans sort of engaged. But, I mean, at the moment, it really is. I don't know, it almost feels like sort of picking at the scab a bit, doesn't it, really? I wonder whether people would just rather leave football alone until we come back properly, hopefully next season. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a good analogy actually. It's um, yeah, you're, you're scraping the barrel a little bit trying to find stuff. As I said previously, like when I was working at the professional clubs, we would like take pictures of the grass growing just because you needed stuff to put up, and people would say they're being quiet. Well, no, we're not. It's just there's nothing to report yeah. at the moment, so it is difficult. So if any clubs are listening, go and take pictures of your grass and see how it's growing. We love a bit of pitch perfect, don't we? Oh West? yes, we do. Yes, we, we certainly do, do. definitely. If you're thinking, Tool Station, I know they'll save me money, but do they have all the top brands? You know, DeWalt, Makita, Einhell, Stanley, Myra, Kudox, Nest and Santex. Yeah, they do. 
over 15,000 trade quality products in the range from the leading brands with prices that are hard to beat. If you want a helping hand to save on your next job, try Toolstation. With over 300 branches, there's always a Toolstation near you. Right then, uh, now, uh, our next interview, uh, as I said at the top of the podcast, is with, with Ollie Bayliss, uh, a BBC journalist. And um, uh, Ollie, of course, works on Three Counties Radio and covers non-league football uh, across the country, um, it has to be said. Uh, uh, and his social media feed has become one of the go-to sources for information on what's going on in non-league football, particularly for fans um, during this pandemic. So I started by asking Ollie whether he'd considered just how important his social media feed had become. Um, I, I don't know. Probably not really. I mean, that's that's a little bit terrifying, isn't it? Because um, <laughs> if I if I didn't do it, or I I decided to to go rogue and just I don't know make make some stuff up every now and then, like you know, everyone at the moment is desperate to get the green light to get back to football, isn't it? You know, yeah. and I can make up all sorts of things. I could, you know, you're only allowed to play football whilst holding an ice cream, and maybe <laughs> maybe people would would go along with that. That's, that's the sort of power that um, I, I don't think I should be trusted with. Um, but no, I, I, I'm, I'm very flattered that for whatever reason, people seem to, to follow what I share about non-league football. And it's been a, it's been a difficult year, hasn't it, for, for everyone involved in, in the game. So I, I do try and sort of offer a little bit of clarity as and when I, I can via social media. Well, as Spider-Man said, with great power comes great responsibility. So, uh, and and I, I do think you do a great job because one of the things I've noticed, you know, even within the Western League, people are craving information at the moment. And I think that, you know, that's no different um, now as it was actually a year ago when, of course, football was grinding to a halt because we're now faced with the prospect that we can get back playing of course originally we all thought that football in some form was going to resume on, on March the 29th I believe that it is the case but in terms of the football that we know it, it, it's actually you know it's not going to be the same for, for spectators certainly uh, on March the 29th is it no it's not we we understand don't we that yeah no spectators in fact not only non-league and in, in grassroots as well is the the news we've had this week from March the 29th which which I think is frustrating. I think people assumed that once we got back playing football, then maybe the government would let non-league sport have, have spectators in the same way that, that we had sort of since September. You know, whilst Premier League stadiums haven't been full, non-league has, has been able to get by, hasn't it, with sort of 300 or 400, 600 fans. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't look like that's going to be the case. And, and even grassroots sort of, you know, football in, in parks, effectively youth football, mm. not going to allow spectators. Um, and I think what's worrying is whose job that actually is to enforce that, whether it's down to the individual clubs that are playing on a, a Sunday on a park. You know, if, if, if someone wants to walk past and sit on a park bench and watch the game, have they got to tell them that they're not allowed to spectate? Uh, you know, it's very, very difficult. You can go and, you know, you can go and have a family picnic with, with two families and, and, you know, 13 people if they're from two households. But as soon as a game of football breaks out in front of you, you have to move on and you can't look at it. It's... That is quite a frustrating situation, but I think for most people involved in grassroots football and, and youth football, certainly the, the idea of getting back to play football is the most important thing. I think where it becomes tricky is, is in the non-league game where we need spectators by and large in order to, to fund non-league football. And without spectators, it's very hard to, to get going and play games. I know some leagues are and some leagues aren't trying to organise extra subsidiary cup competitions, but the ones that are, it's, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. I mean, it puts the FA front and centre again, doesn't it? In sort of, we're all waiting for, for the guidance to come from them. And to be fair to the Football Association, I know that they're reliant on their relationship with the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. But I think one of the other features of restarting football last year was we all got used to wading through endless PDF documents, trying to work out exactly how we could safely manage um, the return of football. And, and actually, as we, as we near March the 29th, that becomes really important, doesn't it? Because although the headline is, yet yeah, no spectators back in games, and you know, certainly Western League clubs will have under-18 sides, they may have reserve sides who are still playing in some county um, competitions. Um, for, for those games, they'll want to be able to use their facilities. You know, they'll want to be able to use their changing rooms. They'll want to be able to train during the week. You know, that will involve cleaning the cleaning the cones and the bibs, I suppose. So actually, we, we do desperately need to hear something from the FA, don't we? Yeah, we do. And it's, if, if we're honest, it's been poor since the, that government announcement on, was it 22nd of February, 
I think we had a statement the day after saying, you know, guidance in due course. And we there's still been absolutely no official guidance. Now, whether that is the FA's fault or the government's fault, I, I don't think we know. You know, I think it's very easy for me to say, yes, it's been poor. I don't necessarily know who to, to blame for that. It may well be that the FA have done absolutely everything they can and the government are just not giving them the answers they need about fans, about changing rooms, about indoor outdoor facilities, about what's allowed in that kind of team sport rule. It may well be that the government are causing the hold-up. It may well be that the FA are causing the hold-up. But one way or another, you know, youth coaches are waiting to get back. They're waiting to organise training sessions. They're waiting to book pitches. They're waiting to fill out all the risk assessments that, you know, you know, as soon as that guidance is going to be produced, it's going to say that clubs are responsible for producing a risk assessment before they get going. Well, these volunteers are going to have a week, less than a week, to come up with that risk assessment and get that all sorted when the government's roadmap announcement was made over a month ago in order to allow time and planning for, for people to get back to normality. So it's hugely frustrating. And, we, you know, we've had a bit of information this week, but that bit of information has been sent out to various people by email from the FA. It hasn't actually been put anywhere public for people to access. Now, whether that's because the FA can't do that because they can't say anything with absolute certainty because they haven't got signed from the DCMS. I don't know. It might be a case that they're trying to keep people in the loop and they don't mind that it's being circulated because they want people to know, but they can't say it officially. I don't know. But either way, the government or the FA, need they need to sort it out a little bit quicker than this because it's your volunteers are the ones yeah. that are suffering. It's volunteers that are going to have to pick up the slack and do all this stuff last minute because, you know, you try turning a group of, of you know, under 18s or kids or, or you know, adults that, Yes, training is allowed from the 29th of March, but you're not actually able to do it because we haven't got all the protocols in place because we haven't done the risk assessments because we haven't ordered the, you know, the sanitising spray that we're being told we need because the FA only gave them two days notice. You know, it's it's the clubs and those volunteers that are going to be scrambling around to get it sorted. I mean, you made an interesting point earlier about, um, about you know, who's actually going to be adjudicating over these guidelines as well. And of course, we expect if from, from what happened sort of last time when we went into the tier system, obviously, local authorities were, were, were put in a position. Certainly, I know that was around sort of licensed premises and, and takeaways and restrictions and that sort of thing. But actually, when we think about youth football in particular, you know, we, we see these wonderful facilities around the country that have been funded by the Football Foundation. They're run by local authorities. They're run by town councils. Um, so the weird thing is you've got potentially the people who would be um, um, making sure that all of the rules are being followed are actually are going to have to make sure that they understand the rules themselves. Because if I want to book a pitch at a football foundation facility, you know, for a five aside game, then they're going to have to know whether I can use the changing rooms, even if I don't. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, you know, I've already seen examples of, of people that have messaged me to say, you know, that the people that are running the youth leagues, for example, think that, that youth football isn't going to be allowed or isn't being allowed because they're looking on the FA website and councils are doing the same. You know, people that want to book pitches, they're looking on the FA website and there's nothing there to say that grassroots football has been given the go ahead from the 29th of March. So people can't book pitches, games can't get organised, leagues. And, uh, you know, I think everyone is doing their best to interpret the guidance, but not everyone is enough of a non-league nerd as, as I am yeah. to be sort of following every little whisper an email to try and work out where we're going quite rightly people that are working in you know councils are looking after an awful lot of different things and they don't necessarily know what the guidance is and they're going to look on the fa website there's, there's nothing there they're going to look on the, the government website about team sport and there's nothing particular about which ones are allowed which ones aren't allowed so they're going to assume that football isn't allowed and unfortunately that again it comes down to i think that the government and the fa needed to have been quicker on this situation I you know you, I don't think you can blame you know we've seen examples of local police forces that have said that that you know spectators aren't allowed non-league games well for people that have been following it really closely yes they have been you know previously this is sorry talking talking back to sort of last year but it's very easy for the police to look up the guidance on spectators and to see the broad brush government guidance which says you know no spectators are allowed at, at football matches which is the sort of the rule for elite sport and assume that applies to everybody this guidance i think needs to be there and more accessible and, and more public and, and easier for, for people to follow and make decisions on uh, one of the reasons i was really keen to get you on is because of course we you know we all live in a bit of a goldfish bowl and you know our goldfish bowl is the western league and and you've got visibility over you know over the whole pyramid and i mean for our member clubs plymouth parkway you know in particular 
are a side that you know have, have a building to go into the Southern League and, and, and quite possibly beyond. And they've been denied the opportunity to do that now on two occasions. Carn Town, which is not a million miles away from me in Wiltshire, they're another side that's finished incredibly strongly both seasons. They've done really well, you know, uh, sort of history breaking in their in their in their in their history and they've not been and they've been denied that sort of silverware they've been denied that opportunity to be promoted i mean what are, what's it like across the rest of the pyramid i mean how much disappointment is there from clubs that um you know that were hoping to go up but have been denied on two on now two occasions yeah there's a lot of frustration i think slightly less so this season compared to last season i think that that reaction to that null and void um decision last last March and April was was felt really strongly you know if you look at a club like like Risborough Rangers who haven't lost a league game in, in about two and a half years or or Jersey Bulls or Vauxhall Motors that had mathematically secured promotion last season before it was made null and void I mean the idea that you can you know on the team bus home or you know going home from an away game you can celebrate the fact that you've mathematically sealed promotion and then somehow have that taken away from you because the season doesn't get finished is is bonkers isn't it I, and I think the frustration was really felt last season. I think this season there's a bit of an acceptance that we've only played eight, nine, ten games in a lot of cases. So, I, you know, I don't think anyone is, is calling for a points per game decision based just on this season. Um, but there's a lot of frustration because a lot of those clubs could have could have bounced up two leagues by, by this point. Um, whether or not we might still see that, that restructuring the pyramid, whether we might see clubs that... Uh, Step five, six, and seven still promoted. It's something that the FA are definitely looking at. You know, the, the Alliance Committee have, have asked FA staff, I understand, to produce a, a report to see how it might happen. Really hard, I think, to see how they can do that, how they can judge that. If last season has been legally made null and void, this season has been curtailed and we've only had eight, nine, ten games or whatever it's, you know, some teams haven't played a game this season. How you can judge a, a fair criteria to promote teams based on I don't know what else, ground grading, level of facilities, I don't know, performance over five, ten years, FA charter status. I don't know. I don't know what other sort of measurable things there are to make that fair or whether doing that is actually just just too much of sort of a headache for, for the FA and leaves them open too much to, to legal action. I, I, I don't know, but they are looking at it and, and there definitely is a will to, to try and do it if they can. I mean, do you think there's a clue we can take from what happened at step two because obviously you know the national league has been through its own hiatus um and one of the resolutions or one of the um one of the solutions that, that, that some clubs were looking for at step two was the ability to play on and, and for the fa to accept that as a, as a sort of a valid tournament enabling promotion um uh, the, the fa chose not to um uh, go with that plan and they cited I think it was was it the integrity of the competition I mean do you think that gives us a clue for how they might look upon the restructuring at the lower end of the pyramid in in the moving clubs up and uh, well up not down to be fair but moving clubs without promotion um would, would, would is that a clue that they won't find that that the integrity of our competition perhaps wouldn't would be an issue for them I don't know I think the I think the decision, I think it was probably a decision made with a heavy heart to, to not allow the clubs at step two to, to carry on. But I think if you look at the if you look at the details of that proposal, and there's, there's obviously various reasons that they went for those details, but having a situation where you're, you're sort of taking a points per game average of a season that's been made null and void and using partly that and you're starting teams at the bottom on a minimum of 20 points to give them a fair chance of getting promoted themselves and you're going to play it over... 10, 11 games where suddenly a team who was, you know, second bottom of the, the National League South can be put into this league, given 20 points as a starting point and win eight games and find themselves in the National League. I think that was probably, you know, partly the worry. And, and they're going to all start on zero goal difference rather than the sort of goal difference that they've acquired so far. I, I think the FO probably, and I don't know, they haven't shared their, their sort of thoughts on it yet. But I think they probably just searched out thoughtless. It's a step too far. It's a stretch too far for the yeah. Football Association to allow such an out-of-the-box competition, an idea. Um, so, yeah, the word integrity was an interesting one. I think, I think it's probably it probably is because of that. I think they they think that you know, does it damage the integrity of of the FA and non-league if you're you're allowing teams to to start a mini season on twenty points that they haven't gained on the pitch because it gives them a better chance of promotion. You know, it's not something they would do in a normal 
occasion. I don't know whether that necessarily gives us a, a window one way or another into their thinking in terms of promoting and elevating teams. I mean, it's something they did, something they did in the women's game last season, uh, you know, based on these five criteria of sort of um, everything from, from staff and on the pitch performance off the sort of field records, all sorts of various bits and pieces, there's sort of six or seven criteria that they use to try and work out how to promote teams. Um, whether you can apply that to the men's game and across three, 400 clubs and sit down and work that out, I honestly don't know. I don't think it's as easy to do that. Um, I, I don't know about you. I just, I cannot think of a way that they can, they can fairly do it. And I, I think it's probably going to become more trouble than it's worth, but it's certainly something they're looking to do. Well, and, and it's certainly something that's going to keep people pointing people at your Twitter feed, I would imagine, over the next few weeks, until certainly until a, a statement is made. Now, um, the good news is, let's all celebrate this. We've actually got some football to talk about. Uh, and we've still got four clubs left in the FA Vars, um, which is um, very exciting for them. I appreciate not so exciting for those clubs that aren't involved. But uh, so it's, it's great that they're going to be able to um, compete in that in that competition, but they're going to have to do so behind closed doors. Now, given what you said earlier in the interview, I mean, that's pretty obvious. That's a given now. But of course, the problem is that, that that's denying those clubs an opportunity to make revenue. And it still means that the host clubs, the home club, have got to pick up the travel bill um, for their opponents. And um, I mean, we've already seen one club, haven't we, um, at Stone Market Town pull out of the Vars. I mean, do you think more will follow? There's a bit of competition prize money, which will hopefully be enough to sort of motivate teams to, to stay in it and to think that, you know, worst case scenario, they they might, you know, break even, hopefully, from, from taking part. Um, but yeah, we don't want to see teams have to pull out because they can't afford to, to take part. It's it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult situation, isn't it? I mean, non-league behind closed doors is is never ideal. You know, the, the point of non-league football really is, is supporters, isn't it? It's community. It's getting the town out to, to watch a team. You know, it's not it's not always about the, the quality of football, to be honest. It doesn't translate to being watched on TV in the same way as, as um, you know, the Premier League game does, you know, as, as badly as that translated at times. It's just, <laughs> even if you are to stream these games, I know some clubs are looking at trying to stream it. It's, it's not the same sitting behind a laptop watching a game with non-league football. It really isn't. Um, so it's just a shame from the point of view of the, the fans, whether or not, I know some clubs are looking at the sort of clubhouse rules that clubhouses are going to be allowed open from the middle of April, whether they, whether they can stream their game in their own clubhouse and put up a screen so you can't directly look at the pitch. You know, we're, we're back to that again, that sort of situation where, where clubs are going to, in some cases, look to sort of stream their own games in their own clubhouse whilst no one can actually, you know, officially look at the, the pitch. It's down to those sort of weird scenarios. Um, whether there's going to be ways clubs can, can make money that way in order to, to keep competing in the competition. And of course, the, the more rounds you get through, the better the prize money and the chance of hopefully a day out at Wembley where fans will be allowed will hopefully motivate enough to, to keep playing because, you know, that's a big payday if you, if you can get to, to a Wembley final. And even if you lose it, the, the idea of playing in front of fans at Wembley is, is worth a lot, both to the players as an experience, but also financially. Um, you know, do you think the FA have got a case to answer, really, that actually, you know, on the face of it, it was a good decision to keep the tournament going, but actually they needed to give some due consideration to the financial implications uh, involved. And actually, it's a bit insensitive not to. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, particularly, you know, literally only days after they've made a statement, you know, uh, sending out a survey to clubs talking about the importance of playing in front of spectators and secondary spend to, to then say, oh, by the way, we're going to complete this tournament. You're, you're, you won't be allowed to have anybody and you won't be able to make any income out other than, than prize money. But um, you've still got to pick up the travel bill for whoever you're playing. And I mean, let's remember when this goes national as a competition last season, if, if, if I can use that term, because I'm never entirely sure which was the last season technically, but of course, Bitten, um, one of our member clubs, Bitten, were, were, were in the semi-final of the Vars, uh, you know, ended up having to go up to Newcastle. I mean, that's going to be an eye-watering amount of money um, uh, for, for, for a club to pick up, particularly when they've got no hope of getting anybody in the ground. Yeah, it's really difficult. I, I wouldn't want to be the FA having to make those decisions. They've been, they've been quite ruthless, haven't they, with cup competitions, with, with the FA Cup this season, the, the trophy and the bars, where, you know, they schedule games and if you've got a COVID test and you can't play a game, you you know, you, you're out, you kicked out the competition. Or yeah. if you're a, a step two club hosting a step three club in the, the FA Trophy or even vice versa, you know, it becomes an elite game and you're not allowed 
fans and spectators. I think I think they're doing their best just to sort of force the continuation of these competitions because they they can't wait for teams. They can't wait for teams in rounds. They they want to get it played because I think if they don't, what happens? You either you either sort of call it a day, share a bit of prize money amongst thirty two teams, and say right, well you know we're just going to get rid of this competition this season and, and start fresh next season, or you say to teams. We're going to play it. I imagine there's no penalty for teams pulling. I don't know that for certain, actually. But I imagine there's, if you forfeit a tie, you're not hit with any sort of penalty in the way you would be in a league fixture. So I think it probably is the right decision in all honesty. I don't think they've got many other choices. I think they're saying to clubs, here's the games. If you can play them, great. If you can't, then you can forfeit and remove yourself from the competition. Otherwise, we're just going to have to scrap the competition because they can't wait to next season to play well, they could do, but that realistically, I think it just becomes such a headache and such a mess. You know, we haven't finished last season's FA Cars yet. I mean, that decision does feel a little bit perplexing that we've waited almost a whole calendar year to try and play last season's FA Trophy, FA Vars final, when there's plenty of opportunities. They could have played that behind closed doors. And a week before fans are allowed in this country in, in stadiums, they decide to schedule it, you know, literally, what is it, 10 days before fans are allowed and they're, they're playing it at Wembley Stadium. That does feel a little bit odd having waited a year to play that fixture um, to schedule it then. I know that they need Wembley isn't available all the time. Obviously, if they could, they probably would. But whether it makes more sense, whether those clubs would prefer to be playing, you know, that Vars final, I think they're both northern teams, whether it makes sense, you know, could you not play that St. James's Park yeah. on the 20th of May or wherever, somewhere a little bit more local to them in front of fans? I don't know, but it feels like it's got to be other options than playing that game behind closed doors when we've waited a year. To, to get it on let's have a little bit of a chat about you um obviously you've uh, you're a bbc journalist what was it that got you into sports journalism i've always been a I've always been a non-league fan i've always been a football fan especially non-league growing up watching watching Aylesbury united which was was where i grew up there my local team in in local town there wasn't sort of a a premier league or even a football league team anywhere near me so it just sort of made sense that you support your your local town and sort of got hooked that way really um and then i i went to university i'm i'm, I'm not a proper journalist i'm a fraud really i went to university <laughs> and studied studied history did student radio and um loved doing student radio whilst at university and you you finish uni with a history degree and no one really tells you before you start there isn't an obvious job you can kind of go into when you've got history. you know it's one of those degrees it's not like pharmacy or something like that where there's quite an obvious route um you you sort of think well, what do i do with that and i thought well radio is brilliant fun love doing that so what if i can try and get get into the world of, of radio um and like everyone sort of has to and like i'd advise anyone to try to get in the media you, you do work experience here there and everywhere anyway you can get your, your foot in the door you do um and after maybe a year year and a half i, I got my work experience at bbc three counties radio which is my local bbc radio station um and luckily i wasn't Luckily, I think I probably made cups of tea for the right people and, and was there at the right time. Maybe when a couple of people left and picked up a few shifts here and there, and then that kind of turns into short-term contracts and and eventually a proper job. And that's pretty much where I am, you know, pretty much me, sort of eight, ten years on. Really, I've, I've moved up from being a broadcast assistant to a to a journalist, which is sort of the the next step on the rung. Um, and and the BBC, especially local radio, is great for. For letting you follow your passions and letting you do things that you wanted to, to do actually it's it's such a small team that work at uh, especially you know local radio stations that uh, there's plenty of opportunities to to do football commentary things like that i've i've found because there's you know we here cover five six professional teams um and you know each of them are playing 46 games a year there's, there's so much that needs to be done um that there's there's sort of always space and always opportunities to to do things um and three, four years ago, we, we moved the schedule around a little bit and created a bit of space in evenings to do shows. And they, they kindly asked me if I wanted to do a show about non-league football, which was something I'd not ever professionally sort of covered or done. I'd always been a fan of non-league football and had used my social media account, I think, for a few years before that to, to talk about games I was at and to cover non-league football. But was able at that point to kind of combine the two and to make it a bit part of my, my work. And three, four years on, I'm obviously still doing that show and it's like a different place, a um, little bit more time in my week to, to cover local non-league football and to try and feed that up into different areas of the BBC as well. What's what's great about the BBC is, you know, we all work quite closely together. So 
the stuff that I'll talk to the guys about BBC Online, BBC Sport, Five Live, you know, bits and pieces elsewhere that you sort of send elsewhere or you help them out with things. Um, and I'm always desperate to sort of to to justify the time I'm given in my working week to cover non-league by trying to share non-league as widely as possible across the the BBC networks. You know, doing things on plenty of other BBC local stations or or you know Five Live Online, places like that, TV. Um, and that's kind of me really or where I've ended up in this sort of weird sort of unique place I don't think anyone else quite has the, the luxury of doing what I do at the BBC or certainly certainly that I've come across um, but I love it I really enjoy doing it and I love you know the social media side of things as well and sticking stuff out on social media it's not you know it's not officially my job but it's sort of connected to my job and I, I really enjoy doing it and I'm I'm lucky enough that I have a role that I have time that I'm able to do that you know if I was a teacher or an A&E nurse I wouldn't be able to you know someone comes in with a broken leg or half an arm you can't really tell them to wait while you're putting out the latest FA guidance on social media whereas luckily working <laughs> in a you know, working in a BBC office where your day job is is at times covering non-league football gives you a bit of time to do that um so I'm, I'm very fortunate from that point of view and very very fortunate to be able to work at something I love and cover something I love um and hopefully at least at the very least, what I hope that I managed to achieve is just increase that kind of increase the coverage of the non-league game because there's there's you know there's so many brilliant stories, there's so many brilliant clubs, there's so many brilliant characters in, in non-league football. I don't always think the wider media is, you know, apart from FA Cup first round day, the wider media isn't always as, as aware of what's going on and, and how fantastic it is. Um, so I think the more you know, the more journalists, the more reporters, the more the more podcasts, the more blogs, you know, the more coverage of it, the, the better, because the more we can share that, the more people will be aware that actually there is a local football club in their town and, you know, they're playing at a surprisingly, you know, good level and actually there's 500 people that are going out and watching them. Mm. Everywhere. I think sometimes people are astonished, aren't they, about mm. the football club that's on their doorstep. You know, I've had conversations with people in, I don't know, in, in you know, the Midlands area or something and they'll say, oh, you know, there isn't really a non-league football club near me and you'll, you'll get them on sort of, you know, one of those ground hopping apps or or um, myfootballground.com or whatever it's going. Actually, you've got twelve clubs, you know, within within twenty miles of your home that you don't know are there. Um, the more we can expose people to the fact that these football clubs are there, the more chance that they'll go through the turnstile and start supporting them. I mean, you underplayed your journalistic credentials um, at the beginning of that answer, and I would I would say that actually I think that you, one of the reasons why I found it. Um, particularly useful to follow you on social media. And um, I mean, on the podcast, we talk about using social media positively. We want to be able to promote our member clubs positively on social media. Sometimes social media can be a difficult place. Let's put it like that. Um, but one of the things that I very much appreciate about your contribution is that I believe you follow the sort of the, the correct journalistic doctrine. And I, dare I even say it, it one that, that has been long espoused and celebrated by the BBC which is, you know, very fair and balanced reporting. You know, you, you, I'm not conscious of too much of sort of opinion going in. You, you, you can, you report the facts as consistently and as fairly as as you see them. And I think in the crisis that we've had over the last twelve months, that's been exceptionally important because you will have seen yourself that people can get incredibly emotive about football and 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 our emotions take over and we start saying all sorts of you know sorts of things i mean at, at, you know at times the debate around whether or not we should void the season seemed to be even more combustible than brexit um but but you've managed to tread a, a very a good line on that and i think that's you know i think that's to your credit thank you uh, yeah that, that is always my aim um and partly maybe that's because yes quite often i i, I sometimes do have an opinion on the things that are happening but i think quite often Quite often, I'm not sure anyone necessarily cares what I really, you know, what I think. But I also think it's it's just helpful to have stuff that's put out there in a in a fairly calm and, and balanced way because there are normally two sides these arguments, and the, the people involved in making these decisions are, you know, they're they're not making them to be difficult. They're not making them because they, you know, they want the worst for non-league football. The people involved in these FA committees are involved in non-league football, uh, non-league football fans, they've been involved in clubs, you know, they are doing their best to make the correct decisions and to, to make things as easy and as best as possible for clubs and, and fans. So, you know, whilst we're talking about, you know, the, the null and void decision, things like that, 
that decision, whether we agree with it or not last season, it wasn't made maliciously. It wasn't made with the idea of old Jersey balls and boxer motors. Wouldn't it be funny if we didn't promote that? You know, of course it wasn't. It was made because people thought it was the best and most sensible decision and best thing to do with a football season that wasn't finished. You know, that hadn't happened before. That hadn't happened since the, the Second World War. Um, so I, I, think it's, I think it's right that these things are reported. I think it's right that these things are, are scrutinised as well. And I think it's... I, I think that's not necessarily always been something that that leagues and the FA have always necessarily and the government have always necessarily appreciated. I think it's right that they're highlighted. It's right that they're scrutinised. And it's right that, uh, you know, for example, the FA putting up the the fines for, for yellow cards this season in grassroots football. You know, that's something that the FA certainly aren't going to chat about themselves. But I think it's right that that's highlighted that in a pandemic, that's what's happening. And of course, you can say the FA are a non-profit organisation and they're having to make redundancies and things are very difficult for them and they've lost a lot of income. So, you know, fine and fair enough. That's certainly one side of the argument. I think it's certainly right these things are highlighted. Um, but yeah, what I try and do is just be as solid and as neutral and as factual as possible. And in a world where things are ever-changing behind the scenes and things are moving and, and you've got all sorts of different organisations sometimes that are saying contradictory things to each other, it's not always easy to be to be accurate and correct and what is correct one day doesn't necessarily stay correct the following day um but i do my best to report things as solidly and as factually as as i can at the point that, that i'm reporting them certainly now we've got quite a few um volunteers in the western league who've who've come to clubs to support their work on social media and and in the and in the local um press uh, and i think in some cases, these um, these people have, have have come in because they see it as a route potentially into uh, you know into a career in 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 either in either sports media or sports broadcasting, um, and and we have seen some absolutely incredible um, examples of this. Um, I mean, most notably the uh, the Plymouth Parkway documentary that was produced um, in when we were in our first lockdown, an incredible piece of work. But we've also seen other people come to clubs and, and, and sort of get involved as a way into you know, building that canon of work that hopefully can, can see them get a job. I mean, do you think that that's a, a, a good um, way into um, the media? Um, you know, is that, is that something that you, you, you've seen in other leagues, you know, where, where, where clubs are being supported more and more now by perhaps students who are looking to develop their work? Yeah, absolutely it is. I, it's something that I recommend when, whenever people speak to me about getting into journalism or getting into broadcasting yeah absolutely covering non-league one way or another so uh, you know there's, there's multiple ways of, of, of getting involved and spreading the word of non-league football either as you said working at a club or helping them or covering it in terms of I, I don't know it's, it's very very easy now the, the internet's brilliant place to to form your own you know blog or social media account or podcast and to, to cover local football and the skills you're using to doing that is exactly the same skills you would do use to, to cover the Premier League. But of course, if, if you're a student and you want an interview with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, that's quite difficult. Now, if you want an interview with, uh, you know, Plymouth Parkway manager or a manager at a step five, step six club, chances are they're going to say yes. Chances are they're going to be more than willing to give you a few minutes of their time um, to, you know, A, try and help spread the message of, of their club, but B, also to, you know, help you out and be flattered that you've shown interest in their, their club. So, yeah, non-league football is something that I recommend that, that people that are interested in getting involved in sports journalism cover and have a look at because it's exactly the same skills commentating on a game in a, you know, step five league as it is to commentate on a game in the AFL, for example, or photography and taking pictures of games and, you know, writing blogs, writing match reports, things like that. But the access you'll get is far easier and the people you'll speak to will be a lot more grateful that you are there and you're interested and you're wanting to cover their league and their level. Um, and yeah, as you said, right, you know, people that are getting involved in the social media side of stuff. Again, it's exactly the same skills that are being used to, to cover teams in, in the EFL in the Premier League and their social media accounts. But you've got a bit more free reign. You, you know, people are probably more forgiving of, of mistakes and you've got a little bit of space there to, to learn and to develop your skills um you know obviously it's still important that, that clubs are represented in the right way but you've got scope and people will be very grateful for the time and effort that you put in um, so i think non-league is a brilliant place to to do that and to hone skills and if you're like me you end up 
sticking around and, and covering it and you know you don't go anywhere and you don't you don't go and cover the the sort of more senior game um but if that's what you ultimately want to do it's still well worth i think having a look and taking a look at, at non-league football um yeah i think you're you're absolutely spot on i think a lot of people are cottoning on to that a lot of people are realizing that and actually a lot of you know we're, it's not always volunteers a lot of clubs actually have a budget or now are happy you know willing i've seen clubs step six they're happy to you know pay pay somebody fairly decent money to run their social media accounts and to, to take photos on a match day and write reports and things like that so it's not it's not always just you know people volunteering their time clubs are actually realizing the the power of social media aren't they they're realizing that the better their social media presence the more that translates to fans through the turnstile it, it makes money for the club so therefore it's only right that you know some of that money is handed over to the people that are that are doing that great work on, on occasion excellent ollie thank you ever so much um for your time um i mean i dread to think how many breaking stories we've missed um whilst we've well whilst we've had you as a captive audience um but just before you go just in case there is anybody listening to this who hasn't heard your your uh, excellent show on um, bbc three counties radio where can people find you it uh, sits on BBC Sounds, which is, is like the BBC iPlayer, but for, for radio, effectively, on the, the BBC website. Um, BBC Three Counties Radio is the station, so, yeah, you can listen to it live through there um, between 2 and 4pm, um, or it's available to listen back to for 28 days after that as well. And my thanks to Ollie for his time. Uh, now, Ollie uh, came across as a very... Uh, um, uh, well, as a, as a you know, as a, as a really cracking journalist um, in that uh, in that interview, um, James. I mean, in, you know, in every, to be fair, in every walk of life, there there are people who are good at their job, and there are people who aren't. I mean, you, I imagine you've come across a fair few journalists in your time. Have you got any tales from the press box for us? I've been really lucky, actually, with the clubs I worked at. The had a really good working relationship and got friendly with most of the journalists and radio presenters. Uh, at both clubs at Yeovil and at Bristol, mainly because they were the sports guys at BBC Radio Bristol used to cover Bristol City and Yeovil, so I was fortunate to work with them at both clubs. Um, but there was a couple of times, one that really stands out, where we leaked a name. Stories were getting out about players we were signing, and it's all quite secretive when you're signing a player at a professional club. You want to get, get out on the official club feed first. But it was always being leaked somewhere and we couldn't find out who it was, if it was someone in the in-house or one of the local journals. So we made up a name that we were going to be signing and uh, kind of leaked it out a little bit to see if any of the local press would pick it up and where they would pick it up from. Because we made a note of who we were telling that no one in the press released it. So it wasn't any one of them. So we decided it must be someone in-house, but we never found out who it was. So the shows we had a bit of trust going with the local uh, local radio and local journalists, which is always a good thing because you kind of need them on your side, I think, because if something bad happens, which obviously it does sometimes in the news, not just football related, you need the press on your side, really, to, if you could speak to them off the record and say, look, God, please don't run that story fully and hide it, which has happened a couple of times, thankfully, and we've managed to hide a couple of bad news stories. Uh, they did come out, but it was a bit later on and not full blown. So I think having a good working relationship is the main thing. That was your own version of the Wagatha Christie um, incident then. Only only you weren't anywhere near as um, as uh, successful as uh, Colleen Rooney. No, nowhere near. No, we, uh, yeah, that would have been good to like unveil someone, wouldn't it? D -d 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 this is who it was and then release a photo of them. But yeah, we, we had our suspicions there was someone at like the local newspaper chat. So like we're speaking to members of staff that may be in our office or just around the ground. But as I said before, it's all so secretive that only select people would know. So you'd have obviously the manager, chairman, the board, probably the secretary, because they were lining stuff up. And then it would filter down to like the media and then we'd go out and take photos or a player's mate. It would always get leaked somewhere, so we always had yeah. the suspicion of who it was. But yeah, we never got to the bottom of it. So media chaps said, "No, we never used to find out. We just find out from you guys because you, when you sign someone, we always used to phone them up and say, look, there's an embargo on it.' Yeah, but we're, we're signing someone. We're releasing it at three o'clock because they got their news bulletins at three. They could then use it at the same time. It's just like then everyone's singing from the same hymn sheet. But 
yeah, no one, they never released anything early, fair play to them. So like I say, good work in relationship always, um, always helped because you could hide the bad news stories. <laughs> Excellent. A good day to bury bad news. Um, well, this is a good moment to bury another podcast. I hope it wasn't a bad one. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Ella and Ollie, of course, for their time. And James, as always, you've been an absolute delight. And I look forward to catching up with you on next week's Tool Station Western League podcast.